This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, January 17th, 2022, on your public radio station, KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us on this King holiday. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead this hour, Eureka Springs is a popular tourist destination and now, increasingly, a homeless destination. Yeah, and a lot of people tell me, um, we don't have any homeless here in Eureka. And I said, well, you're not looking. You will see them all the time. Mostly they're walking along the highway. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports later this hour. We begin this Monday with two of the people behind the creation of the first production in 2022 from Theater Squared, Katori Hall's The Mountaintop. The play centers on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his Lorraine Motel room, April 3rd, 1968. And the play leads us through an imagined conversation and visit. The production opens at T2 with in-person performances Wednesday night. Friday morning, we spoke with two actors in The Mountaintop, Clinton Lowe and Anicia J. Hicks, as well as the director of the show, Vicki Washington. We'll hear much of the conversation on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, but we did want to share a portion of the conversation with you today. Clinton Lowe says the work to prepare for his role as Dr. King in The Mountaintop has been illuminating. The preparation has been enlightening. It's been fantastic. Diving into this man's life has been uh, a spiral of joy, surprise, and unexpected twists and turns, as well as spiritually fulfilling. You know, this is Dr. King is one of the most um, well-known American figures of the last 60 or 70 years. You mentioned that it's been surprising for you in some unexpected twists and turns. In what way in, in your preparation? Um, well, diving into the early stages of his life, such as childhood, et cetera, his education background, educational background, um, to find, to discover the trials and tribulations he went through. Um, and some of this, some of this is assumption on my part. So I, I take ownership of everything that I say and what I extrapolate. But when I look at his background in terms of uh, discipline within his family, it seems as if corporal punishment was uh, a means, one of the things that was used, as, as was common in that day with, with all kinds of families in America. Um, to see that he loved his grandmother so much that one time when he thought she had died, passed away as a youth, he jumped out of a window, mm. I believe a two-story window. Some would consider that a suicide attempt. Um, then when she did die, he did it again. Um, so some consider that a second suicide attempt. And that's all before, um, I think that was uh, either during his teenage years or preteen years, right? So this is somebody who um, is a very passionate human being, a very uh, extreme personality. And in my discovery, violence was a part of his upbringing. And he seems to have had a very uh, adverse reaction to violence. Um, so kind of rooting that within his philosophy. I also was a philosophy major in college myself. So, um, I, I see the, the sprinkles of Hegel in his thought, right? I see obviously Gandhi, but I see the sprinkles of Du Bois and I see the sprinkles of, um, Kant and Plato. And I see, you know, different figures, philosophical giants as well that he's drawing from and, I can so I'm just trying to connect thought to actual real life, real world experience, and that's how I was building him. On top of the fact that, from my understanding, the first woman he fell in love with was a white woman, mm. and his family and community did not allow him to pursue that relationship. A relationship I believe he was he was willing to pursue into marriage, which we don't talk a lot about. Even now, I feel I'm like, ooh, should I reveal that? But it's just it's just a fact, right? That's just the truth. So how does that factor into? Um, we're all the same. We're all equal. Segregation is evil. Like, how does that factor into these thoughts besides just some, like, some philosophical musing that's, like, out there in the world somewhere rather than being inside his actual heart and real-world experience? Like, where are these ideas coming from? Where is this passion coming from? Where is this courage coming from? You know, this is a human being, not just some kind of a 
computer program spitting out, you know, you know, manifesting biblical verses, right? This is a, a person who's who's really thinking and experiencing these things. So I could go on and on as you see. So the research has been great. Clinton Lowe portrays Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Theater Squared's production of The Mountaintop, opening Wednesday. He spoke with us Friday morning by Zoom. Also part of that Friday conversation was Vicki Washington, the director of the T2 production. She says cast and crew have kept very much in mind that the play takes place in April 1968, but also has distinct resonance for 2022. Uh, one of the things uh, that we have uh, been very intentional about is uh, something that is, you know, uh, very important to any process of building great theater, and that's the research. Especially when you're doing a, a piece that has a basis in uh, historical fact. You mentioned that it is a, uh, that 68, it is 1968, and that we, we know uh, of this story or a part of, significant part of this story. That is true, and at the same time, what is true is that there's a lot of uh, the historical events of this time that we don't know. America is very good at telling uh, a liking to deal with a single story, to uh, quote the Nigerian writer whose name I can never think of, Jamanda, I can't think of her name, but the danger of a single story, and there's a danger in that. And, and in many ways, Katori Hall's script amplifies and uh, uh, deals with, the, with, with how America tries to create a, a narrow story and or a single story. And uh, they've done that with Dr. King, uh, lionized him, deified him, and stuck him in amber in 1963 at, at, a, at uh, Lincoln's feet saying, I have a dream and that's all he said. That important girls, he didn't say anything else. So uh, here we are in 2022, I can't believe it's 2022, but we're in 2022, and uh, all those things that King talked about before he got to the March of Watch on Washington, after the March on Washington, even at the March on Washington that we don't talk about, all the stuff he talked about before he went into his hoop, if you will, um, are the realities that we find ourselves dealing with sociologically uh, in our socioeconomic world, in the lack of social justice politics, um, and the continuing to tell these, spin these yarns and these myths that are not that are not full history, that are not the full story. To your question of how uh, we have talked about and thought about the contemporariness of the piece, yes. Just last night, I think, um, uh, Kanye, Clinton <laughs> mentioned Kanye West, and I kind of, uh, what did I do? I, I probably snarled. No, he definitely snarled, yes. I yes. probably snarled. <laughs> and uh, then he said, but you know, and I think in the, and Anissa also said, when you look at rappers and hip hop, uh, many of the hip hop celebrities and the bit of the story that we know about them, we have a tendency to um, say, eh, you know, but there's, they're full people too. They're, they're not two, they are fully people. And there's a, a meme that was going around with a picture of Malcolm X when he was a young man and, in, and had just been imprisoned and said, if he had, if we had tossed him off when he was Detroit Red and that's all he was, then we wouldn't have the brilliance and beauty and the lessons that he brings to us. Conversely maybe, but, and also at the same time, when we uh, uh, narrow ourselves and our understanding and our knowledge of Dr. King as just the man, just this icon, this saintly figure, and don't look at him as the full human being that he was, is, was, then we run the danger and have run the danger and have, and have in fact remo removed his full humanity from our understanding of him and from us being able to access the fact that he was a fully human being and even as this fully human being and all his flaws and foibles, he was able to take on the mantle and did the things he do. And that keeps us from understanding that with our fables, foibles and flaws, there are things that we can accept to do and to do. Vicki Washington is directing Theater Squared's production of Katori Hall's The Mountaintop, opening Wednesday in Fayetteville. Our conversation took place Friday morning via Zoom. Also part of that conversation, the two actors that will be on stage in the mountaintop, Anisha J. Hicks and Clinton Lowe. We'll hear much more from all three of our guests about the play on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon 
and 7 p.m. on KUAF. And you can listen on your schedule when you download or subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast through any major podcast distributor. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us on this Monday. The town of Eureka Springs is a popular tourist destination, and now, increasingly, there are more people living there without the benefit of permanent shelter. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, city officials and local charities are trying to both respond and resolve the situation. Volunteers rustle up a free hot lunch this winter afternoon, buffet-style, in a former Western Sizzlin' restaurant on East Van Buren in Eureka Springs. It's free to everyone, anyone that comes in, and they can eat as all, all they want. The complex is called A Cup of Love Ministry, founded by Patty Jarrett and husband Chuck. We are a church, first of all, and then we have food pantry, and we help um, people... Um, with hot meals and stuff all day long. So Monday through Friday, we are a church that doesn't close, except for Saturday. A Cup of Love was founded in 2013, first as a street mission. This volunteer-run free kitchen and food pantry are open from 10 to 2 p.m. weekdays and Sundays for non-denominational church service. Jarrett is on call 24-7, she says, to help anyone in crisis. In 2020, this place served 10,000 individuals. There's been an increase just in the people that come through here that we feed and through the food pantry. um, We allow anyone to come. They don't have to give us their ID or anything like that because um, whatever their situation is, that's personal. A couple of love food pantry served 2,232 individuals last month, a mix of white, black, Hispanic, Marshallese, Indian American, and gender diverse people, most from Eureka Springs, population 2,166, others traveling from rural districts in Carroll and Madison counties. Over 1,800 hot meals were served last month as well. Jarrett says more homeless are coming through now. And they're coming here for jobs and stuff like that, but they're um, not coming prepared for homes. And we don't have enough housing for the people, so they end up on the streets. And so uh, a lot of them are either in motels or living with someone or they're in a tent. We do allow people to park in our parking lot if they have a vehicle. And so we'll have probably five to ten of those in the evenings. A Cup of Love allows homeless to sleep in their cars in their private parking lot. Others take refuge in one of three rough homeless camps in the county. If they're homeless, we try to send them either to Seven Hills, which is Fayetteville, or Springfield, or Harrison. There's shelters in those areas. There's no shelter in Carroll County. Operating A Cup of Love costs $6,500 a month. A third of that is the mortgage, plus utilities, insurance, and transportation. The ministry also pays $1,000 a month to NWA Food Bank for fresh vegetables, fruits, canned, and boxed foods. Several key churches, as well as community members, support a cup of love, she says. Financial donations can be dropped off during business hours or through several secure donation portals at acupofloveministry.org. Outside at the ministry's entrance, Sarah, no last name given, smokes a cigarette and sorts through a box of donated clothes and shoes. She's grateful for this place, she says. I mean, I've seen people come in here that really needed help, and a couple of us pretty good place for them to come. I mean, there's a lot of people that care here, and, you know, so, yeah. I mean, they help out in any way they shape that they can, you know. Down the road operates Eureka Christian Health Outreach, or ECHO, co-founded by Susie Bell. Yeah, and a lot of people tell me, um, we don't have any homeless here in Eureka. And I said, well, you're not looking. You will see them all the time. Mostly they're walking along the highway, carrying all they have, usually a backpack or rolling a, a little suitcase. 
Dr. Danbell, Susie Spouse, is the volunteer director of medical care for Echoes Health Clinic, a grantee of the Arkansas Charitable Clinics Program, which provides funding for equipment and supplies to volunteer-run safety net health care organizations. Echo Clinic provides comprehensive health care to low-income and impoverished residents, operates a busy thrift shop, and recently built a cooperative low-income residential housing development nearby. 26 homes are planned. 11 have been built along with a chicken coop and greenhouse. Small homes. They're not tiny homes. They're small homes. One and two bedroom, in which we rent out to uh, people who are housing insecure. Some of them are homeless. We have one rescue studio apartment, and we um, work with the individuals. We have programs, social worker, to help them get out of that cycle of poverty. Echo Village is classified as Section 8 Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, which authorizes and offsets payment of rental assistance to landlords on behalf of low-income households. Bell says, depending upon income, monthly rents for Echo Village tenants can be as low as $98. Bell also monitors a nearby homeless camp recently resettling a woman, Kim York, into an Echo Village rescue apartment. You know, I've been living out in the woods in a tent for eight months and three and a half weeks in my car. And I have a cat. (laughs) She and Olaf Mortimer of York, the cat, are now warm, fed, and secure. I'm trying not to cry on you. <laughs> I'm sitting here tearing up because, you know, I am somebody. You know, I didn't have any choice but to survive. The Tulsa native and retired medical assistant until recently owned a home in the area, which was unfairly taken, she says. She's 65 on medical disability and Social Security. She's tried to find a place to live to no avail. When you're homeless, you find out who your friends are. You don't have any dignity. York says Echo Clinic has consistently helped her with her medical needs, including a digestive disorder, which makes it difficult to eat. But now... I've been eating like a pig. (laughs) So is my cat. We've just been trying to rest. York says she's determined to find a new home somehow, and Susie Bell aims to house more homeless individuals in crisis. We have a major fundraiser going uh, because we're trying to build a hospitality house at Echo Village that will serve as a, a meeting area for the residents, but the upper floor is going to be filled with bunk beds for homeless Ways to help can be found on Echo Village on Facebook. In late February, Bill will facilitate a homeless survey in Carroll County. A similar survey was conducted just before the pandemic. Bell estimates as many as 100 homeless people are in the region. And uh, some of the people don't want the help. Um, there's so many mental health issues that they we there's some folks that we actually just can't help, and and we understand that. Echo Clinic staff provide psychiatric care when possible, Bell says, conducting criminal background checks to protect Echo staff, volunteers, and the local community. Bell says workers come to Eureka Springs to labor in the tourism industry as housekeepers, cooks, and wait staff, but a growing number are ending up homeless due to a lack of affordable housing in town. Unfortunately, a lot of our homes that sold were were scooped up uh, as second homes or Airbnbs, and that really cut into our rental. An ordinance was enacted in October to control the spread of short-term vacation rentals in order to preserve more housing in Eureka Springs. Sandy Martin is chair of the Eureka Springs Mayor's Task Force on Economic Development. We are looking at every conceivable option for workforce housing as well as affordable housing. Two decades ago, data show a modest two-bedroom home could be purchased in Eureka for under $100,000. Today, the median listing price is closing in on a half million dollars. And it makes it more difficult for us to recruit people to come in because there's no place to live. For now, Martin says working poor are living in Berryville, 20 minutes east, or Holiday Island, 15 minutes north of former retirement community where rents and home prices are also escalating, 
or in southern rural Missouri. The task force is considering forming a nonprofit community land trust or community development corporation umbrella to purchase land to build workforce and affordable housing, either small prefab structures or 3D printed homes and multi-unit dwellings. The biggest barrier to any development, aside and apart from the inflated costs uh, and the supply chain issues and the cost of materials, is land. That's always been the case. So we're looking at two different options on how we can get land purchased and donated to the 501c3 nonprofit entity to provide um, to provide tax incentives in either rebates, credits, some kind of an incentive to the people who purchase and donate the land that could be extremely lucrative for them. That eliminates the cost of the land in the project. And we're looking for initially a tract of about four to 10 acres to develop 60 to 80 units uh, on that for workforce housing. Another option is retrofitting a few vacant motels in Eureka Springs into government subsidized rentals. To be housing quarters. Uh, you know, you got to think of, of kitchens, you've got to think of uh, additional bathrooms, things like that. And it, it's been prohibitive so far, but we're not giving up on that idea. Martin says the mayor's task force is acutely aware of the growing homeless population in Eureka Springs. We are a very attractive community, and we are a very caring community, and I think that is something that gets around with the people who need services and need help. We have um, facilities and organizations like ECHO, ECHO Village, ECHO Clinic, uh, that provide unbelievable services for, you know, for our, our population. And um, we have a lot of transients that are moving out of other areas that they can't afford, and they come through Eureka Springs and decide to stay here. Posing a unique and difficult challenge for the historic tourist town. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is Ozarks at Large. We know that you can't always be with us for our broadcast times on KUAF 91.3 at noon and 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. So we've made the program available to you in many other ways, including through the KUAF app. It's a free app that you can download from the App Store. There are archives of Ozarks at Large programs there. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large and hear the most recent daily edition of our show. You can go to ozarksatlarge.com and find past individual stories, interviews, and features, as well as past complete episodes of our program. And you can subscribe to the free KUAF Ozarks at Large daily email newsletter when you sign up. You'll get a daily newsletter every Monday through Friday afternoon. Contained in that newsletter will be what was on the show that day and links that let you click right through. And those links also let you share interviews and stories you heard that you think somebody you know would like to hear. It's all available to you for free. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Arkansas Gymnastic Team's first-ever competition in Bud Walton Arena drew the largest home crowd in program history Friday night. The 15th-ranked Razorbacks had more than 10,000 fans for their narrow loss to number 8 Auburn. Despite the loss, Arkansas did record its sixth best meet score in history. Arkansas will next be at number 6 LSU Friday night. That meet scheduled to be shown on the SEC Network. The Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team upset the number 12 LSU Tigers Saturday afternoon 65-58 to and now are 2-3 and three in SEC play. Arkansas will host South Carolina tomorrow night at 6 in Bud Walton Arena. And the Razorback basketball women now 11-5 and overall and 1-3 and in conference after losing to top-ranked South Carolina yesterday in Fayetteville. Razorbacks will play at Alabama Thursday night. We'll return to the Arkansas Razorbacks and some of the great years after this message for the Simmons First National Bank of Pine Bluff. This is Ozarks at Large. It's time to go back into the Prior Center archives to hear some of Arkansas's history. To help us do that is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Prior Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Joining me on the phone, welcome back, Randy. Thank you very much, Kyle. What did we just hear? Well, that was uh, Bud Campbell. Um, this is sort of part two 
from last week's segment. Um, he he was the uh, sports director and voice of the Razorbacks from the mid '60s to the mid '70s, and uh, he had just done so many interviews with so many people. We just decided to pull some more out this week. All right, well let's let's get started. We're going to hear from one of the all time greats next. Yes, Mickey Mantle. This was uh, towards the end of his career. This was in 1966, and uh, he came to Arkansas. He wasn't really uh, promoting baseball. He had picked up a new career selling insurance and uh, was coming to Arkansas. It was a Texas company he was working for and was selling insurance, but, uh, but at least got to get some questions in about baseball. Do you feel that the uh, Yankees will have to become more promotion-minded because of the competition they get in New York uh, from the Mets nowadays? Well, we're going to have to do something. Uh, used to uh, be when the Mets first started, we just could put our ball team on the field, and that was competition enough. But uh, we finished in last place last year uh, in the American League, and I, th- I don't even think the Mets finished in last place. I'm not sure. They might have. But they uh, drew quite a few more people. They have a brand-new stadium, and they've got real good parking, which we don't have at Yankee Stadium. We're in the Bronx there, and we uh, just have the parking facilities. It's connected with the ballpark almost, and there's not very much. And uh, they just uh, the Yankees are going to have to do something to give the people uh, something more unless we go ahead and win a pennant again next year, which could happen. I mean, we weren't a last-place ball club. It looked like... Uh, Looked kind of bad, but we lost 41 or 42 games by one run. And, of course, Mantle, uh, even this was Cardinal territory in the 1960s, but Mantle, being from Commerce, Oklahoma, had a lot of fans in Arkansas. That's right. That's right. Um, But speaking of looking towards the future and, uh, you know, baseball players, let's talk about another baseball great, uh, third baseman George Kell, who was from Arkansas, Swifton, as a matter of fact. Um, And in 1973, um, he talked to him about, you know, life after Major League Baseball. A lot of baseball players uh, made pretty good money while they were playing. It slipped away from them, and they're really doing nothing at this time. When you were playing, were you thinking about what was down the line for you? Constantly, I think, Bud. Baseball is so easy. They pay you for doing something you like to do so well, and they pay you so well for it that you get into the fear or the thinking that someday I'm going to have to work for a living. And I've been very fortunate. I read this one time that a fellow is very fortunate who can grow old with his parents and grow up with his children. And and I've been very fortunate to do that. My father's 73 and my mother's about 68. And I have grown old with them and grown up with my children right in Swifton. And I never intend to live anywhere else. George Kell, who I think kind of has been forgotten by a lot of people, but he was a heck of a third baseman, most if not all of his career with the Detroit Tigers. And he was from Swifton, Arkansas. And there are other Arkansas Hall of Famers. And retired to, to Swifton, Arkansas. Yeah. And we have some yeah. other uh, Arkansas Hall of Famers. That's right. Uh, this one from uh, Lucas, Arkansas. And what a character. Uh, pitcher Dizzy Dean. Uh, he would come back to Arkansas all the time. But in this interview, Bud talks to him about Major League Baseball players from back in his day compared to those of the early 70s when he talked to him. Yes, I do, uh, but I think that baseball players today are uh, treated much different than we were in those days. I think ball players in our days wanted to play the game much harder and uh, more often, and we wanted to stay and do those things. But today, it's money. Now, we used to come down out of the, our room and go into the coffee shop with a newspaper and, and read about what who hit this today and how this guy pitched that guy. But today, they come down with Wall Street Journals under their arm and want to know what the stock market is. We had more fun, I think, in those days with baseball due to the fact we travel on trains. We was closer together all the time. Uh, these these ball players today has got the most advantage, the most, uh, uh, you know, equipment, and everything's changed. We pitched in small ballparks. We played in small ballparks. We, uh, we slept in trains that didn't have air conditioning on. Now they're flying these big air-conditioned jets, and they're still griping. 
Diz, thank you very much. It's nice to have you back in Arkansas. Next time you come back, uh, my handicap is close to yours. Maybe we can get together. Buddy, I'll join you, partner, as a partner. <laughs> Thanks ever so much. <laughs> Dizzy Dean, who was uh, a great pitcher, whose career was cut short when his uh, foot was hit by a line drive in an all-star game. That's right. That's right. But he was uh, a big, big broadcast favorite just because he was so colorful. He would make up words. Well, like, you know, he, he slud into the base. <laughs> he was popular with baseball fans, but not so much with English teachers across the country, actually. <laughs> no, no. He would, he would get letters uh, yes. scolding him for, for his use of the, or, or lack thereof of the English language. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dizzy Dean, known for, among other things, his fastball, but Bob Feller, who pitched for Cleveland for many years, was even more the widely known. from Van Meter. Yeah. He yes. was widely known for his fastball. Yes. And he was in town uh, or in the state in 1972, and he talked about uh, an Arkansan uh, catcher, Bill Dickey, from the New York Yankees and just had wonderful things to say about him. One of the all-time pitching greats in baseball is visiting in Little Rock today, Bob Feller, the Van Meter, Iowa farm boy who made a great name for himself in the major leagues. And uh, Bob, I ran into Bill Dickey a while ago, and he was at Cooperstown this past week when Yogi Berra and Colfax and all of them were inducted. I think you were there too, weren't you? Yes, I attend the uh, ceremonies every year. I was inducted in 62. I saw Bill there and DiMaggio and Gomez. They were all reminiscing as well as the other Hall of Famers and guests of the baseball commissioner at the dinner. And, of course, the ceremonies went off fine. It's always good to see Bill Dickey, a great catcher. I consider him the best catcher I ever pitched to. And, of course, pitching to Bill was in the All-Star Games uh, in the Detroit and New York and other cities uh, during our careers in the American League when the American League used to win one now and then. Talking about some of the people that legendary Arkansas broadcaster Bud Campbell interviewed during his career, that was Bob Feller. Uh, Bud, talk to another Arkansas native who made it big in the sports world. Uh, Bear Bryant, because, you know, uh, Bear Bryant would come back to Arkansas a lot, too, uh, because of his roots here from uh, Cleveland County. And uh, this instance, um, in the 70s, Bud talked to him about college football versus the pros. Coach, I know you've had opportunities to go with the pros, but uh, college football just has a little different atmosphere, doesn't it? Well, yes, Bud, and uh, I think that, of course, when I was having, was having more opportunity when I was young, and at that time I, I really didn't have any uh, interest in pros other than the fact that they don't have to recruit. And um, now, I'm, you know, an old man, uh, I wouldn't mind owning a pro club or part of one, uh, but I haven't had any of those propositions other than, you know, if they want you to do the work too. So... That, that, I don't think that, well, I know that'll ever happen now because I'll, I'll finish mine up at the uh, University of Alabama. One of the great players that you had was Joe Namath, who certainly has, uh, I guess, been the biggest name in pro football in recent years. Could you foresee that when he was a college player for you, that he was going to do this? Oh, I thought so. I think everyone thought Joe was gifted with more talent than any athlete I've ever seen, and, and he's a winner. He's, he's uh, intelligent. Football comes easy for him. But that is... The legendary Bear Bryant, who I think was from Fordyce. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Now, other non-Arkansas natives who were big in the sports world would also come through the state and talk to Bud Campbell, including Lee Trevino. Right. And this was in 68. This was early in his career. He had just had his first major win, which was the U.S. Open. And he came to the Pleasant Valley Country Club in Little Rock uh, for a fundraiser. This is the 1968 U.S. Open champ Lee Trevino from El Paso, Texas, who a few minutes ago was hitting some balls on the range here at Pleasant Valley. And you tell me, Lee, you what, four over on the range? Four over after three balls on the range. <laughs> and I heard, you, I heard you yelling something, and it didn't sound English. You were yelling to your caddy. What was that? Well, I hit one right at him, and I, and, uh, I said cuatro, which means four. You know, he didn't understand me. <laughs> he just stood there. Lee, uh, just one serious question. It's nice to have you here as part of the group of five, uh, and, of course, it all, all the benefits go toward the Boy Scouts, and we really appreciate you being in Little Rock. I know it's your first trip here, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's uh, my first trip in Arkansas. Uh, never had, I've been to Texacana a couple of times, played in a few programs, but I've never been. Uh, I had to get a visa to come up this far. The late Lee Trevino talking with the late 
Bud Campbell in 1968. Randy, we touched on last week in our first part of this salute to Bud Campbell that he also not only worked for KATV and called Arkansas Razorback football games, but he worked for ABC Network as well. Yes, he did regional games, and uh, they really liked him um, and really respected him. When when he hosted a, a student sports banquet, uh, ABC sent down none other than Howard Cosell to act as the keynote speaker. And, and, and uh, Bud had some... Uh, fun introducing Howard Cosell. Yes, well, you know, Cosell's style. He was he was brassy. He was obnoxious, and uh, quite fond of himself. <laughs> yes, and uh, and and so yeah, in the style of Cosell, this, this is the way Bud Campbell introduced him. This may be a little tough on me, ladies and gentlemen. But in the often nugatory course of human existence, amid the viscous, turgid ebb and flow of everyday incidents, <laughs> please, there comes now and again, at widely disparate intervals, the opportunity to indulge in an act of pristine pleasure. Such an opportunity has now fallen my way, and I shall procrastinate no more than the requisite moment to perpetuate upon you an introductory elocution preparatory to the presentation of the gentleman who will provide the oratorical apex of the evening. <laughs> it is perhaps remiss not to delve into and dwell upon the kaleidoscopic credits this man bears in his bag of experience. However, if the time-worn presumption that there are people who truly do not require introduction has any vestige of validity, then this, in fact, is a case in point. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and privilege at this auspicious juncture of eternity <laughs> to present to you the rhetorical mainstay of ABC Sports. Here he is, live and in person, Howard Cosell. Now, Howard Cosell uh, had a reputation, at least, of being uh, the smartest guy in the room. If you didn't believe it, just ask him. I mean, that was sort of his his <laughs> reputation, and I think he he played into that, right? I mean, he enjoyed that sort oh, of. Oh, he loved it. Yes, and he and Muhammad Ali had quite a relationship. But he was not without a sense of humor. Let's listen to how Howard Cosell responded to that Bud Campbell introduction. That was a very pleasant departure from the broadcast industry you just engineered upon yourself, Bud. I don't think you realized when you were doing that that you had peremptorily ruptured your relationship with KATV and with the American Broadcasting <laughs> Company. But uh, in the vast cosmopolitan heterogeneous metropolis that is the great city of the world, we don't like smart asses. <laughs> That's Howard Cosell. <laughs> in, in the past, we're talking about Bud Campbell on this week's Prior Center Profiles with Randy Dixon from the Prior. You're not going to have to bleep that, are you? Ah, uh, nah. Here's where the, the story turns sad. Uh, Bud was in the top of his career. Uh, this was 1974 in October, and he was killed in a, a one-car accident in West Little Rock. Right. And um, this was in the middle of the 1974 Razorback football season. So that meant that uh, the next edition of the coaching show with Frank Broyles would go on, but obviously without Bud Campbell. Right. So uh, ABC uh, sent Chris Schinkel, who was one of their main guys at the time, to sit in and uh, do the show for Bud with Frank Broyles. Um, right now, that is being digitized, so I don't have that clip, but I will. And when we get it in, I'll I'll certainly bring it on our program. But, but you... here is um, a tribute uh, to Bud from his good friend Frank Broyles. This has been a sad day for the Broyles family and for the many sports fans 
uh, across this state. Uh, Bud Campbell's loss was a, a real tragedy for everybody who loves sports. I've been his close personal friend for the 17 years I've been in Arkansas. We've worked together. I've admired his integrity, his honesty, the way he felt about uh, his work. He loved it very much. He was a tireless worker. Every coach and every fan and every player that knew Bud admired and respected him for what he stood for. We at the University of Arkansas uh, were very proud to have had him associated with our Razorback program through the network, both football and basketball. And of course, uh, it's a deep personal loss to Barbara and myself because uh, we have been very close friends through these many years. And you know, Randy, it's really hard to believe that Bud Campbell was with KATV less than a decade when you think about the impact he had on the state. Oh, I know. Just in these last two uh, segments we've done, you can tell uh, how how hard he worked, how much he worked, and how respected he was. You know, everyone knew him. Uh, if you notice in every one of those interviews, they would say, well, Bud, mm-hmm. or, you know, thanks, Bud. They They all knew who he was. Yeah. So you have also part of his audition tape? Well, yeah, I, I just found this yesterday, <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. But in 1966, he did an audition with uh, Dale Nicholson, and uh, you'll notice uh, it's sponsored by uh, a beer yeah. company. So, yeah, here's here's a little snippet of, of his very first audition for KATV. Special guest tonight, George Sylvie, director of scouts for the St. Louis Cardinals. Bud Campbell on Sports brought to you by certified premium quality Lone Star Beer, the beer that makes the most of nature's best. Now here's Bud. Thank you, Dale. Good evening, everyone, for Lone Star Beer. This just highlights what what is involved and included in all of these archives that are being digitized by the prior for the prior center. Well, and I come across things uh, new every day that I that I didn't even realize were in there. So uh, it's going to be great to have these posted and searchable. Uh, it's just a, a treasure. All right. Well, Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Just put Pryor Center into a search engine and you can spend hours on this holiday, if you'd like, looking for other material. And Randy, you'll be back with us next week. Absolutely. KUAF is supported by RCOM Plus, offering printing, binding, graphic design, and more. Open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. Orders can be submitted via email, telephone, or walk-in service is available. Printingnwa.com or 444-7711 for additional information. Tomorrow on our show, what the latest numbers from the Arkansas Department of Health tell us about the current surge of COVID-19 throughout the state. We'll also hear more from the creative forces behind Theater Squared's production of The Mountaintop and John Brummett. Columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette will speak with Roby Brock about a new year for Arkansas politics. You can be with us tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3 or join us by using the KUAF app or listen on your schedule with the free Ozarks at Large podcast available through all major podcast distributors. It's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman, joined today by David Collins, Public Programs Manager at Historic Cane Hill. David, thanks for talking to me today. Thanks for having me again, Pete. It's the Smithsonian Institute's Habitat Exhibit. Describe this and and how it came to Cane Hill. It's a traveling exhibit. It was developed by Smithsonian Gardens as a way for people to experience sort of a self-guided exploration of of habitats of various plants and animals to learn about, you know, why we need them and how fragile they are and how we can protect them. So this particular experience will showcase some of the unique habitats in the natural and garden spaces here at Cane Hill through a series of stations around the site that'll include things like Fossil Cove and Dead Wood is Life and Sign of the Dragonfly, which will all have interactive information on different species throughout the eras. 
the opportunity to host Habitat when it came up in fall of 2020, we, we really understood how it could spotlight the incredible natural landscape here. We have Jordan Creek, natural springs, limestone bluffs, different native trees and plant species. So we also sort of extend the concept of habitats to, to include humans who have lived in and around Cane Hill. So their, their impact on the place and nature's impact on them. Smithsonian Institute's Habitat Exhibit, allowing visitors to discover information about habitats of various species of flora and fauna while exploring the natural space out at Cane Hill. It sounds like it's going to be really fun, and I, I like those workshops, too, scheduled for oh, yeah. throughout uh, the summer. Uh, speaking with David Collins, Public Programs Manager there at Historic Cane Hill. Okay, again, I know we're a little bit early, but we wanted our listeners to know that this is coming up. Uh, if someone wants to know more about mm-hmm. this, uh, what's the best way to find the information? The exhibit will be available to the public by early April, uh, and we'll have a grand opening on April 16th. Come and visit us throughout the spring, summer, and fall. It's great for school-age children or just anyone who wants to come and learn about uh, natural habitat. You can visit historiccanehillar.org slash habitat. We're extending more uh, sponsorship opportunities. So if, if you or your organization would like to help us bring this to Northwest Arkansas, give us a call. David Collins, thanks for letting us know about this. And uh, I can't wait to see what it's going to look like. Yeah, we're really excited about it, Pete. Thank you. The Community Spotlight and KUAF Local Matters. This is Ozarks at Large. One week from tonight, the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History will begin a new year of Pryor Center Presents Lectures with a virtual talk delivered by retired General Wesley Clark. His lecture, The End of the Post-Cold War, America in Crisis, is about how the international position of the United States has changed from one General Clark describes as the indispensable nation in the 1990s and 2000s to one of now finding its values, interests, and power under prolonged challenge by Russia, China, and Iran. The talk begins at 6 a week from tonight via Zoom, and registration through the Prior Center website is required. General Clark was on our show last January. At that time, he discussed a nonprofit he founded, Renew America Together, an organization designed to bring civil discourse and policy discussion to the forefront. Our conversation was recorded about a week after the insurrection at the United States Capitol, and I asked him last year about the challenges the country faces at home and abroad, and if those challenges dovetail with each other. The early 1980s, we've worked steadily to, there's no nicer way to put it, we, we, we chose the private sector over the public sector as though the two were in competition when in fact they are synergistic. America needs a strong public sector with dedicated public servants and all the other things that come with the government that we had in the 1950s to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We need public health. We Everybody sees that now. We, we need to regulate markets. We went through 2008. That was a market regulation, massive failure. Um, We need national defense. We need uh, security at our borders. We need an immigration system that works. These are, none of these things can the private sector do by itself. Um, We need innovation. And in fact, if you look back historically at the United States, most of the innovation in the last 70 years has come from government investment, not from the private sector. Private sector takes the research and development money put into the Defense Department or into the National Institutes of Health or into the Department of Energy, and then suddenly, boom, it takes all the credit. (laughs) But everything from fracking to the Internet to space travel, um, it all began with government investment. So... um, So we need government. We need private sector because you have to have the initiative, the independence, the risk-taking propensities of the private sector, the organizational, and people have to be motivated. So the two are synergistic, but um, somehow we lost sight of that. And step by step, we have attacked government to the extent that we finally elected a president who became an enemy. He saw government as, as a deep state enemy when, in fact, he was the leader of it. So everything from the regulations which keep our air clean and our water pure to um, to dealing with future issues like climate change suddenly became like the wrong thing to do. Uh, but what was the right thing to do? So somehow 
we have to get the balance right between government and the private sector. If we don't do that in the United States, then how can these people abroad look at the United States and trust us? So in that sense, there's a real connection between what happens here and what happens abroad. If it's taken us decades to develop and hone that distrust of government or that competition uh, between private and public sector, it's not going to be repaired in a couple of months or a couple of years. This is going to take a, a, a long haul, I would have guess. I think it's going to be a tough process, really. I mean, I think you first have to start by going back and looking at this past election. Now, tens of millions of people believe the election was fraudulent, or at least that's what they said. They signed up to it. And uh, we saw all these people in D.C. who said, we're going to take our country back. Well, you have the country. You voted. I mean, so uh, we have to have a re-education or an education campaign that brings people together on, on the election. Maybe we need to change some of the processes and elections as, as part of that. But th- that's the start of it. Um, and then I think government has to be more constructive. One of the things that happened starting in the 1980s is we took away from government a lot of the resources that government has traditionally had and systematically removed its authorities so it could do less and less to help people. Just in our own state, the state government used to pay most of the costs of higher education. So you went to the University of Arkansas when I was a, when I graduated from all high school, you could go to the University of Arkansas. And it was it wasn't free. You still had to eat and sleep, but it was relatively inexpensive, even by the cost of living standards then. Today, it's not. It's expensive. And this is representative of state colleges and universities across the country. The public funding for education isn't there. Retired General Wesley Clark on Ozarks at Large last January. He'll deliver the first Prior Center Presents Lecture of the New Year a week from tonight via Zoom, beginning at 6. Registration is required. You can learn much more at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History website. This is Ozarks at Large. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Moffat, Oklahoma. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's show was produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History, and Pete Hartman with Community Spotlight. New editions of Community Spotlight can be heard every weekday morning at 6.30 and 8.30 on KUAF. Our web is maintained by Matthew Moore. Our theme, written and performed by Daryl Sean. Support for use of our archives from past editions of Ozarks at Large comes from the Women's Giving Circle at the University of Arkansas. You can find out more about us and find older shows at ozarksatlarge.com. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a brand new Tuesday edition of our show. Thank you so much for being with us. Please take care of yourself. Be careful. We'll talk again soon. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellums.